Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, I'm delighted that uh, this week, my guest is one of Britain's most popular comedians. Simon Evans has been at it now for over 20 years. He's appeared right across the media in shows such as Live at the Apollo and his own Radio 4 series, Simon Evans Goes to Market. He's also been on Question Time. He's currently touring with a new show, which is called The Work of the Devil, and he's with me now. Thank you very much indeed, Simon. Thank you. My this, pleasure. This new show, The Work of the Devil, this is well, it's quite a personal one, isn't it? It's very personal, and the personal element is unfortunately something I can't talk about because I'm trying to maintain the coup de théâtre, the, the sort of oh. great revelation in the final third of the show uh, in which I introduce the unexpected element, much as it was introduced into my life just over a year ago. Right. And, um, and I'm enjoying seeing a crowd react to that and fall silent with shock as the, uh, as the implications of what's unfolding before them sink in. It's unusual in that uh, respect because stand-up shows are normally just a collection of routines and to some extent you tie up a few loose ends at the end to give people the impression that you've given it a moment's thought before you started. But, but it doesn't generally have a, a sort of arc you know, right. in the way that a, a, a play does. But, um, but this one does. It has, there's, there's a, a degree to which not only actually in the show itself, but, and I know this is a frustrating and, and sort of irritatingly teasing, but the, the, the nature of this sort of revelation has thrown a new light on my entire career as a stand-up, really. really? Yeah, yeah. It's quite, I mean, it is a personal revelation. With, I mean, it's about um, uh, family and that sort of thing. Mm. But um, it's, it's really unexpected and it's quite extraordinary. I, I, th- I think I'm justified in saying that. Enough people have told me that that's, that's been their impression, that their response was. It's, that's quite something to do that in front of an audience, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, actually, and it is, yes. And it wasn't, I wasn't at all sure how I would feel about it myself. But performing the show at the Edinburgh Festival last year, to where you do about 26 mm. nights on the trot, one night off in the middle of that, um, it was actually an extraordinarily therapeutic experience. Mm. It's, it's, it's not something I'd done before, even sought the, uh, the sort of personal, intimate, revelatory, mm. confessional style of comedy. Um, in fact, I think if anything, you would probably characterise me as, you know, on the arch, you know, yeah. ironic, detached end of the spectrum. But yeah. it's very rewarding. Mm. The only experience I previously had of it was in my own at my own wedding when I, um, you know, you have the, the groom, the mm. best man, and the father mm. take it in turns. And because I was a comedian and, and I didn't want to try and get into some kind of, you know, antler locking mm. mentality mm. with my best man, I said, "Listen, you do the jokes. I'm just going to." deliver quite a short and emotionally um, uh, raw, you know, vote of thanks to my family and to you and to my wife's family and so on. And that was the first time I'd addressed a crowd and and spoken from the heart, you know, yeah. and, and acknowledged the value and, and um, the... Um, the glow of love mm. in, in, in my life, mm. you know, and, and it was an extraordinary experience. I remember thinking afterwards, God, I wish I could find some way of incorporating that into a live show without doing it, without cheapening, the, you know, without seeking cheap emotion. Um, but 15 years passed and there were no opportunities to do no, so. And then right, suddenly okay. out of nowhere, this one arrived. And it is lovely. The actual, the, really what it is, I suppose, is is the, the final resolution it, it, um, amounts to an expression of gratitude, right. which is a, a great thing to do in front of people. Mm. I mean, uh, there are, of course, 
large, very profitable organisations which essentially offer people the chance to stand up and express gratitude and honesty and, and mm. self-revelation in mm. front of other crowds of people and so on. If you can provide the infrastructure for doing that, I think a lot of people would regard that as a little bit Californian you know, right. for their yes, taste, yes, but yes. There's, no, there's no denying the power it can have. Yeah. Yes. Do you still, I mean, you've been doing stand-up now for 23 years? Yes, 1996. So it'll be 24 years in May. 24 years. Do you still get nervous of it? Well, not most Or did gigs. you get nervous? Oh, I did get nervous. God, yes. Well, I mean, initially, I think, and I don't think I'm unusual in this respect, initially I, I regarded stand-up comedy as more like a, an extreme sport than a possible career. It mm. was, I, I had no expectation of earning money out of it. I was hoping to get a journalism career started, and I, I did stand-up because somebody asked me to write a story about it. But um, so it was that it was that simple. Was it? You, it was actually the Camden and St Pancras Chronicle, yeah. a, a local newspaper, yeah. and they asked me to write a story about some people who were teaching improv in Red Lion Square, just off um, right. Hobart, I think it is. Yes, and um, and so I went along to this sort of adult education centre. It's Wednesday nights, and it was a, it was that kind of thing where everyone's in barefoot on squeaky floorboards, you know, kind of like doing some sort of visualisation <laughs> exercises, and then you start doing the improv. There are a set of conventions which enable you to interact creatively with other people, you know, essentially just being positive, not blocking, building with their suggestion, allowing their vision of what's unfolding, you know, in this in this virtual space to influence yours and so on. And it, it was extraordinarily um, addictive. I, I loved it. I wanted to be there all the time. I, I annoyed my friends by trying to introduce sort of improv games into card <laughs> journeys and things. You know. And from that, after about two years of that, somebody said, you know, you can do stand-up as well. There are places where you can just try that out for fun. And again, I had no interest in uh, making a career out of it. But again, it just very addictive, very quickly. And I think the nerves there were a big part of that mm. because... You know, immediately, my first five minutes, which was on a night where the entire night was open spots, as they're called, just doing mm. five minutes. Mm. There were no professionals in the room at all. The rest of the crowd were all people who'd come there to give moral support to an individual member. And at least half the room were there to give support to um, a lesbian comedian who I've lost contact with. I haven't seen her for ages. She mainly did maths comedy. But I remember there was this room. I was a little bit afraid of them because they were quite militant-looking lesbians to my <laughs> mind. And in fact, they were fantastic. They were the yeah. warmest and most supportive crowd of people. If they if they turned against me on that night, not that there was any reason why they should have done, but I don't know that I would be sitting here now. But anyway... Um, yeah, I mean, you're in and out of the lavatory, you know, every five minutes for about three hours beforehand, and yeah. then you come off stage and you are absolutely flying, yeah, you know, because yeah. you've got away with it. It's, yeah. it's like doing a skydive for the first time, you know. You said that you were possibly thinking of being a journalist at yeah. the time, but uh, we were talking a little bit before we started filming, and when I've watched your, your, your stuff, you, it, it does have a, a rather right, writerly feel about it. it. It, you know, it feels mm. very rendered and, and, and complete. And, uh, you know, th that, that's relatively unusual now, isn't it? it? I think it is in stand-up. I think it might always have been in stand-up. Although, having said that, some of the really classic routines, if you look at Woody Allen's routines mm. from the early 60s, mm. there's one about a moose, which he shoots in upstate New York and then takes to a costume party. <laughs> where which is which is the most densely I mean it, it, it performs turns every third word you're presented yeah. with a new scenario yeah. and it's worth studying the transcript almost like scripture but, but then there's a lot of other stand-up that is yeah it's more I mean Billy Connolly would be one of the great giants and, and it, he just feels like a chap who's had a couple of 
drinks at the bar and is just garrulous and wherever his mind takes him, you know. But my heroes, comedically, I think, were always writers, actually. I didn't grow up loving stand-up comedy. I didn't have any particular... Um, I mean, I, I, like anybody else, I, there would be, the, you know, the people you would enjoy. But to be honest, most of the big stand-ups that we would watch on VHS when I was at university, for instance, were... Connolly, uh, Eddie Murphy, mm. Steve Martin. These aren't mm. people I've emulated at all. So you know. a lot of American uh, humour. They, they seem to be um, like raising the temperature yeah. faster, like taking it further mm. more quickly. Mm. There were some great... Um, I mean, I emerged... when well, I started doing it in about 96, I think. Uh, Harry Hill, Dylan Moran, um, I think Eddie Izzard had kind of was, was like playing small theatres by then. There were some pretty creative acts, but they weren't... They hadn't like turned on a light in my head in the way that, say, Douglas Adams did when mm. I first read him, mm. or uh, or Alan Corrin for me. You mm. know, in the, the probably the first sort of adult humour that I really enjoyed was mm. was his, were his columns, you know, in Punch and so on. What about? I think we're roughly the same age. Uh, what, what about sort of growing up? What about the people that you might have seen on TV? I mean, who? Who did you like? I I adored Les Dawson. I always Dawson loved. was great, but again, no influence on me at all. No. I mean, he but they, they he seemed of a, of a completely. I did feel, and I still feel actually, that stand-up comedy, uh, rightly or wrongly, but I think rightly, if I'm honest, was quite a regional. You know, it was like an expression of your folk identity almost. Les Dawson, mm. that's very anchored mm. in the Northwest. Mm. You know, it mm. felt like it was a postcard from a particular. Mm. We didn't have mothers-in-law of that kind, no, you know. No, it just didn't no. make any sense. Yeah. But I watched. My nan used to watch Coronation Street, so I understood the sort of milieu that that kind of idea came out of. And um, and then you know there was uh, Dave Allen again, who hilariously funny, but mm. was obviously like rooted in in sectarian mm. Irish, Irish mm. culture. You know, there was all of that um, flavour. It was like it was folk music. I think st yeah. good stand-up comedy should be rooted yes. in place. You know, yeah. a bit like that David Goodhart somewhere anywhere yes, division. Yes, you yes, know, yes, I yes. think stand-up yeah. at its best is yes. an expression of somewhere. You know. But what about these people such as, you know, Morecambe and Wise, mm. the two on is people like this, Victoria Wood, yeah. 15 million views. Okay, I know the whole techno technological situation's changed, with yes. it, but 15, 20, 25 million. Um, that seems to have been, an that, that is an entirely disappeared yeah. format, isn't it? Mm. Would you call that stand-up or would, were they just variety entertainers? Interesting, Morecambe and Wise, one of the things that's, that's well known in, in our business, I don't know how well known it is beyond, is that they had a live show which they would not touch for the television. Really? Yeah, and there is one recording of it. I think it was recorded at maybe Fairfield Halls in Croydon, somewhere right. in Croydon anyway. Um, which you can get on VHS, I think on eBay or <laughs> whatever, you know, which is of the live show. And I've never seen it, but the, um, uh, yeah, so everything they did for television was purely done for television. That, that was nothing like Live at the Apollo. Yeah. Live at the Apollo, every comedian, for instance, will come on and do a, a, a set they've done countless times in right. the clubs, you know. Yeah. And occasionally, if they've... If they've um, if they've accelerated a bit beyond their capacity to deliver, they might create some new material for the night, but it will usually show if they have, because right. to be right. honest, you want stuff that you're so comfortable in, it's like it, you can do it without thinking, you know, like driving the car. Whereas, yeah, um, Morecambe and Wise, and as you say, two Ronnies and so on. I mean, the famous thing with the two Ronnies was that Ronnie Barker was writing half the material, but under an alias, so that mm. it would be mm. um, accepted on its merits. 
you know, but we didn't know that at the time. We, mm. we just thought they were two actors, essentially. Mm. And funny enough, I was in a hotel room two nights ago in Keswick. And actually, you know, after Keswick, but I'd driven three, three hours afterwards. Anyway, it had, um, the TV was tuned to one of those strange channels that just shows reruns from the 70s. Oh, yes. Either, yeah, either documentaries yeah. about Hitler, and then in the evening it cuts to, um, <laughs> yes. it cuts to the two writers. <laughs> I don't know exactly what that market is, but it must have focused grouped very well. And... Um, Anyway, so I was watching, and, and normally now when you see the Subronis, it'll be a tribute evening and mm. they will cull the best and mm. the, the stuff that survived, you know, and the four, hand, four candles and so on. When you see a show in the raw now, just like uncut yeah. from 1978 or whatever, it, it's, it shows its age, yes, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, I understand the sentimental appeal and the affection on mm. the nostalgia, mm. but there's no getting away with it, you know. They are extraordinarily sexist. A lot of the jokes are kind of playground humour mm, really mm. they had enormous charm and skill as performers you know mm. but I, I think it would be a mistake to look back with through t two heavily tinted spectacles at, at that era I mm. think actually comedy is probably in a healthier state now really yeah I would say really? so even though they have yes it was lovely that they could unite the nation mm. but that material would not unite the nation now and could not even if the BBC were to take a deep breath and mm. just go do you know what I mean yes Mrs Brown's Boys is probably mm. the closest to that and it does win huge amounts of votes and the rest of the industry goes really that's mm. your favourite mm. you know and but mm. you know it's like democracy and, and you know you have to accept it but I, I can't in my in, in my heart and in all honesty say that I, I miss it I miss I do miss a, a collective culture. I do miss a sense of, mm. of British identity gathered around the hearth. Yes, but if, if if it were that that it were gathered around, I don't think it would work anymore because it was, it was it's it's dated, you know, and things have moved on, and and not without casualties, but broadly speaking, for the better. Do, wouldn't you say this is one of the reasons why, for example, sitcoms don't work really as they used to? I mean, no. we do have a few sitcoms, don't yes. we? But again. You're talking about these massive sitcoms, mm. Only Fools and Horses. I know that these are cliches, but one of the reasons they're cliches is because they're, they're so yes. good. Um, that, that still works, I think. And if you watch it, it stands up funny enough. That I guess that's a little bit more recent. Is it the 90s? Uh, it goes Only up Fools to the 90s. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, interesting. I mean, those, you know, obviously there was a baton handed over very much from Ronnie Barker to David Jason. Yes. I mean, they were, you know, quite literally in, in open all hours. My son, who is 12, adores Friday Night Dinner, which is right. a, uh, a sitcom about a Jewish family, essentially. Jewish, uh, that's mm. the Jewish Friday Night Dinner, set in North London, as far as I can understand it, but has sort of traditional wacky neighbours, you know, a series of quite traditional British grotesques. And he binge watches that, mm. like three or four in a go, mm. you know, and they love uh, various American sitcoms like Modern Family and Brooklyn 99. I think the idea of a sitcom where you're just presented with the same characters mm in the same situation is still got very much got legs but but there is an expectation now of i think a faster pace i think the the joke rates they come faster mm. they are slightly more modulated they they did used to be a bit like set up punch yeah yeah you know and now it's it's more like slalom skiing you know there's this kind of rush you watch modern family i don't know if you've watched it for the yeah, time. Yeah, i remember the first yeah. time i watched that i binged it on a um, on an airplane and it, it almost you almost feel high, you know the the, the, the speed and technical mm. skill that's being demonstrated by the uh, just the rhythm of it. Mm. it, it it's it's delirious. But yeah. I suppose in a way as well, you're saying that you know, a, even though you like the idea of you know a 
country coming together around the hearth and watching yes. something. Um, that wouldn't be possible now. <clears throat> but also, you, it requires shared assumptions, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And that's what pretty much has gone, would you say? The assumptions have gone, but I think, yes, better, absolutely. I mean, my father still watches, he's 89, and he still watches um, Last of the Summer Wine, which right. is, again, always right. available on one of those channels. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, and I went up to see him recently. My mum was in hospital, so I was absolutely there to provide moral support for him, and uh, and I didn't uh, question this at all. But we watched about seven on the trot. <laughs> the joke is always the same, and it's this kind of... You know, there's that. Yeah. There's the old fella who's got the young, slightly kind of brash, bet bet mid, not bet, bet lynched style yeah, girlfriend. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, with the blonde. Yeah. You know, I mean, these are very dated caricatures, yeah. but they're not dated in my dad's head because that's how human beings are. They don't continue to move with the times at the same speed. You know, yes, yes. and to be honest, I mean, most of his memories, most of his conversation now, go going backwards. Yes. You know, he's he's, he's as time yes. goes on, he is more and more anchored in his national service mm. days. That's where a lot of his um, anecdotes and so on mm. come out of now. I think that's what happens. Families are, they, you know, they live longer now. And, mm. and people, you know, they are expanding. People live less in extended families. You know, there's all kinds of demographic changes that are going to affect how people, and of course, as you say, technology has, has shattered the mm. expectation mm. that, you watch what's on. You've got three programs to choose from. Well, no, you haven't. You've all yeah. got a screen, and you've got the entirety of everything that's been made ever. Yes. You know to watch. So, it's extraordinary actually that we can still get together around certain things, but it does require a little bit of, of determination. When you started doing the stand-up, you said about ninety-six. Yes. Right? Uh, we were just on the cusp of having the Blair government, weren't we? Yeah. What was that? Ruined everything for me. <laughs> Well, why, I mean, was it was it sort of when you went and started doing your first stand-up? Yeah. Maybe before you were on doing TV and radio, was it political? I mean, or was it in the way that we understand now, or not? My early stand-up wasn't wasn't political, no. But I think I was. I found I was feeling my way for quite a long mm. time, actually. And what I did as a stand-up, and I think a lot of stand-ups would do this, is you have to. You're, it's almost like sonar initially. You know, it's echolocation. Mm. You're listening for the reaction that mm. you get, and not just in terms of a laugh, but whether the laugh is immediate and like feels like you've hit hit a you know right. a, a solar plexus or you, mm. the, what you want is that <coughs> yeah, that's yeah. the laugh you want, not yeah. that kind of <laughs> yeah, but, you know yeah. nothing polite. You've got to get a strong visceral reaction from the crowd. And when you realise, I mean, I, I went on, for instance, just on the most superficial level, dressed inappropriately, you know, for my material. On several occasions, I thought I'm going to go on in black jeans, black T-shirt, black leather jacket, because that's who I want to be on stage. I want to be mm -hmm. like young Elvis, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And um, and they were crowd were like, what? What, are, yeah, <laughs> what do you think you are? You look ridiculous, you know. Or yeah. at least it doesn't yeah. go with the persona. They immediately can tell that, no, you're a failed barrister you're not, a, you know, you're not a, you know. so then you start so then I, for a while I had this quite it was a little bit like Rob Newman in his Mary Whitehouse days I don't know if you remember him but he had this character called Jarvis who was a sort of loose lounge lizard type character slightly disreputable 
picked up again in the far show with a similar character who's going, me, here, with some Catholic schoolgirls. You know, <laughs> but anyway, it was a sort of double-breasted, crushed yes. velvet um, sort of smoking yeah, jacket yeah. type thing, which was, and that, that started to, I started to find the persona then, and gradually, and I just lucked out with this line, something along the lines of, um, you may be struggling to place my accent, it is in fact educated. And that, was, <laughs> yes, and that, that. always worked brilliantly <laughs> well in certain, like in Newcastle, they love that, because they yeah. could immediately get it was a caricature in London itself of course they were like no just um, and a bit Australian <laughs> but anyway gradually you build up a persona and then you start to understand yourself you know but a lot of it initially is trying to understand how they are seeing you you know and politics didn't really come into that at all I, I did a few bits that um, I remember I think probably the first time I really started to dab with politics was probably the Gulf War and even then it was more to express bafflement and bemusement about mm, what was going mm. on or what were the tactics or what we'll be hoping to do that we were invading a country because he's got weapons of mass destruction you would think the war would be the perfect opportunity to use them that, mm. that sort of thing and um but at the same time i was working in a, a radio for comedy show called the way it is we did eight series of that and there i played a, a an anchor who was roughly in the sort of jeremy paxman stroke chris morris mold so we attacked political issues in, in that mode but uh, that was part of a, a sort of collective but again they knew that I was a little bit of a I was a counterbalance to the rest of the team I think who were quite left liberal sort of leaning in that respect but so it was basically your persona that yeah. they assumed yeah uh, you know that it would never be coming from the right yeah but it was a slightly curmudgeon is yes. that right they tried to write me they tried to write me into different directions but I could only really do <laughs> like right, slightly right, right. right well reactionary I suppose is the word yeah, isn't yeah. it yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, I'm Adults sure you wrestle with this, like what is yeah. conservative, what is right wing, what yeah. blah blah blah. I think you know, it's a kind of Peter Hitchensy sort of, um, you know, well, there's nothing worth conserving anymore anyway. It's that black pilled kind of yes. attitude that's yeah. comic. You know, yeah. I mean, you're not actually trying to lay out policy suggestions. <laughs> yeah, you know, no, that would no. be pointless. And the truth is, in any stand up situation, people don't want to think very in detail about about any political issues they're just they just want to see a kind of archetype that they can find amusing do you i mean do you do you kind of balk when people say right-wing comedian simon evans i think somebody a journalist said that to you yeah i see it quite often i mean i do see it on twitter occasionally (laughs) on twitter this this will sound appalling and far worse than being right-wing but I do occasionally uh, name search myself just to see what people are saying about me, but yeah. behind my back, as it were. Yeah. And, um, and also occasionally to find out if any venues are advertising a gig that <laughs> I need to retweet. Or, or even occasionally to find out where I'm supposed to be tonight. But, um, <laughs> but occasionally you see things, and, and nine times out of ten, it will be somebody, somebody has said there are no right-wing comedians, or there are no funny right-wing comedians, or there are no right-wing comedians on the television. They're either saying it in a good way or an angry way. And then somebody else will go, oh, I think Simon Evans is quite right wing, isn't he? And then somebody else will go, I don't think he's right wing. I just, you know, and they can, nobody can quite be sure. And yeah. that's how I like it. Yeah, I think yeah. I think it's good that you don't feel Jeremy Hardy was a left wing comedian. He yeah, was a brilliant yeah. comedian. He could make my father, who was a died in the wool Tory, he could make him mm. bark with laughter because he was a very skillful comedian. But um, but he was unapologetically left wing. There was no two ways about mm. it. You know, he made documentaries about Palestine. Whereas I, I don't, that's not who I want to be, you know. Mm. But I have noticed in the last three years because of Brexit, you know, it, 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 that has thrown everything into much sharper relief than it used to be. And I think that's been the point at which a lot of people have suddenly gone, 
Well, that's odd. There don't seem to be any, not so much right-wing comedians as pro-Brexit comedians. You know, there is Jeff Norcott, who you're probably aware of, yeah. who, who has quite bravely and, and also skillfully, you know, developed a, has identified a path. There's Lee Hurst too, isn't he? Lee, but yeah. Lee's, I mean, Lee is, I, I, he's a nice guy, Lee. I like him very much and he's a skillful comedian, but there's no escaping the fact that his TV, you know, he had his years on, they think it's all over and he's mm. kind of, he's almost retired now. I think he's been plagued with quite serious back problems and um, mm. you know he's he's not like kind of somebody who's rising to that challenge he's mm. just expressing his views you, know? you you have written about this and you I think you quoted Marcus Brigstock mm. left-wing comedian who basically was shocked at people walking out yeah um, when you go outside of the M25 walking out of shows or whatever because he was maybe rude about Brexiteers I think you said it was almost like a poison that had been injected into comedy yes Is that, was that I right? wouldn't say it was necessarily a poison there, there was a moment when um, I think it was suddenly exposed that the, such an overwhelming majority of comedians had just presumed mm. a consensus mm. about Europe mm. that wasn't shared outside of their, their bubble for, I mean that's a slightly sort of scabrous term but yeah and I think they were going into the shires with that presumed consensus and discovering that it wasn't there having said that also, with all these things, it's always in layers because, to some extent, comedians will s sort of talk about this sort of thing in order to get some sort of traction with the press anyway. So you can yeah, never yeah. be sure how serious it is. Yeah. Marcus is a skilled comedian. I'm sure he can turn a room around or acknowledge what's going on or mm. ooh, ooh, mm. step back a bit there. Mm. I have seen some comedians, I won't name names, who made me feel uncomfortable on behalf of anyone in the audience who was pro-Brexit. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's right, personally. I mean, I just think that's wrong. I don't think you should make anyone feel uncomfortable in the audience for being black or for being gay or any... Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, mm -hmm. you might say, well, those are immutable characteristics and Brexit is a political opinion. Well, it is, but it's not like being a Nazi and they're sort of suggesting it is, you know. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that was very common. But there was certainly... I think everyone was brought up short by a sudden realisation that... Uh, the comedy community had sort of drifted into this quite narrowly confined space, which was quite surprising. I think it's not just comedies. I mean, in the sense that uh, there was a report out recently. I, my background is in, in the arts, you know, TV producing and, and, and writing about them. Right. Um, but there was a, a report out recently, last week, uh, which talked about the fact that not only are the arts generally, the creative sphere, monolithically on the same page about almost everything, not just Brexit. No. But they actually have really started, you know, to, to um, in some ways, penalise people who have different views. Now, that that is a situation that seems very recognisable to me, I have to say. Mm. I mean, so it's not just comedy. And, and you know, it's theatre, it's, it's all yeah. of these areas, I would have thought. And when I watch the, or listen to the BBC, it does appear to me, I know it's a cliche, that it's just endless, just left-wing comedy. Well, I think, yeah, yeah, I mean, I have to be careful what I say about the BBC because well, I hope course. to continue a career mm -hmm. with them, but I do sometimes think they do seem to have almost a death wish at, the, at the precisely mm -hmm. the moment at which they mm -hmm. are struggling to demonstrate the legitimacy of the licence fee. I can't see how they can claim there is anything other than an absurd level of bias. Out The news, I think, is, is pretty good. I think news and current affairs, there are definitely some right-wing journalists, and you can identify them, and there are some left-wing journalists, and they get some stories wrong, but they seem to attract fire from both sides, at least. You know. I do think um, the, the, the comedy and drama departments, 
I don't watch a huge amount of it, you know, but it it it's, it is extraordinary how often you will hear somebody complaining that they can no longer watch such and such a show because it's become very woke. This is the, usually the adjective that describes not just left wing but sort of sanctimoniously mm. preachy. You know, yes, I do think there is a, a a danger of that. Whether it's a long term thing, I don't know. Whether it's something that is. I think it's quite interesting. I mean, even yesterday, I don't know if you saw this on Twitter, the Royal Institute, the scientific body, uh, put out a tweet in which they were trying to understand why women weren't engaging with their video mm. content as much as men were, something like a, a ratio of seven to one uh, mm. they, they had discovered on their YouTube uh, videos and so on. And they put out this tweet saying... Um, if you identify as a woman, we'd like to hear from you about, mm. about you know, mm. and immediately attracted a lot of people on Twitter saying, what do you mean, identify as a woman? If you're trying to ask women, just ask women. Mm. Now, you know, I think it's interesting, although I felt irritated, I think you've, you, what you can see there is, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people in the role of social media, uh, you know, uh, operative for, for these organisations who are desperately trying to work out how to navigate and and steer their way through you know, very uh, turbulent waters in this regard, you know, and maybe things will settle down quite soon. I don't know, but this this is, I think, what's happening as much as anything else. You know, I think uh, it, the, the problem is this really is when it comes to say your air comedy and and the BBC, is that you know there's this thing is in comedies and there of punching down and punching up you know yes. you should if, if anything you should try and punch up you know and go for the establishment but uh, increasingly one feels that actually the, the punching is downwards it's towards these awful people who voted Brexit and by yes. by extension conservative people you know and you're watching it I watch it and I sort of I used to enjoy the new uh, have I got news for you I used to enjoy it but now I sort of look at it and I sort of think you would disapprove of me why <laughs> therefore can I laugh at you yes well I understand that feeling I don't know that they would I think Paul Merton is pretty good actually in terms of maintaining mm. balance and obviously it does depend who hosts it but mm. without looking at that particular program I do agree with you that the punching down punching up thing is not mm. as straightforward as it sounds I, I mentioned that on that Radio 4 show that I mm. did last last year uh, Simon Evans is right which you can still hear on the on the sounds app which is um it is deceptive because, you know, the in-group, out-group thing, it's a, it's a genuine dynamic, but it isn't always immediately apparent who's got the upper hand in any given situation. Yeah, yeah. And what can amount to the establishment doesn't necessarily mean in the old terms of who owns the property and who has exactly. the ear of the queen. You know, it, yes. it can be, as you say, within the media group, it can mm. be the people who have the correct opinions, the high-status opinions, mm. who can demonstrate that they can afford to be like pro-refugee or whatever mm. and then of course if you're anti-refugee then the just you know to take an extreme example if you are skeptical about uh, open borders then if you can both sides can say well you're punching down because one side will say well you're making jokes that are about you know mm. the refugees are the most marginalized and vulnerable people mm. in the world but on the other hand the, the jokes that are at the expense of somebody who would rather maintain border controls, mm -hmm. those people, as you say, don't mm -hmm. necessarily feel they have any power. Which is why I always say every good comedy routine should be more like a boxing match. You mm -hmm. know, you should punch up, down, sideways, and you should land a few blows on yourself as well. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what people want to see. They want to see a flurry of punches, not mm -hmm. just this relentless, you know, bomb, bomb, bomb on the same target. Do you find, though, that audiences come to see certain comedians 
you know, because they want things confirmed in their mind. I mean, there, there is I this think, sense... I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, th- I think everyone wants that. But, uh, I mean, right, I do think right. it's one of the great right. illusions of stand-up comedy that, that many of us cherish, is that you can change minds or that people mm. like to make you think. Mm. They don't like to be made right. to think. I mean, almost nobody likes to be made to think. Afterwards, you might kind of go, that was interesting, I found that funny, but on reflection, you know, I suppose mm. what he was saying there was actually, you know, that mm. might happen a little bit, but mm. it, it, thinking and laughing are anathema you have to circumvent you have to bypass the part of the brain that reflects and ponders and, and untangles you have to make people laugh like yeah. that otherwise it's dead one thing I'm sure that is the case now that wouldn't have been the case in 1996 when you started doing stand-up uh, is this extraordinary culture now we have of the giving or taking of offence mm. I mean, this has huge implications, surely, for comedy, doesn't it? In fact, sometimes it appears to be only about comedy. Yes. Um, what people say in comedy. I mean, has this affected the way that you do your stand-up? The trick, and the, the really tricky thing about it is it's, it's annoying if you feel that you can't just crack a joke and somebody might go, well, it's a bit, you know, ist yeah, yeah. Or, or phobic or whatever. But on the other hand, I think even worse is is trying to create comedy. I mean, there's one person who gets away with it, which is Ricky Gervais, probably, who's right. created his whole brand now as a stand-up. And even that is only really works because he's already created such good television, yeah. you know, with his sitcoms and so on, that he has that the authority. But where you can kind of go, I don't care, I don't care, you know, I'm going to say offensive things. You see, I don't, you know what I mean, at the mm. Golden Globes or whatever. Mm, mm. And everyone laughs and loves that. But mm. that can be really irritating as well, you know. I've always thought the thing with, with all good stand-up comedy throughout the, the, the ages has been you find out where the edge is in the room you're playing and then you, you like hop back and forth across it. You know, you're a little mm-hmm. bit, whoop, a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, and so technically and in theory, it don't, shouldn't matter what people find offensive, whether, whether you live in an era where you, know, you can use the N-word uh, half a dozen times in your mm-hmm. set and nobody will care, or whether you live in an era in which you so much as suggest that, uh, that, a, that a husband and wife may not have uh, biologically indistinct preferences is, is horrifically beyond the pale. Mm-hmm. As long as you know where the, where the border is, you can go back and forth it. But, of course, what is problematic now, I think, in audiences is not people taking offence themselves or feeling offended mm. genuinely. It's people projecting and second-guessing what other people might feel yes. on their behalf. Exactly. And that yeah, becomes exactly. impossible. That, exactly. if, if too much of that goes on, it doesn't happen very often. I, I think the only occasion I've had it probably in my own stand-up has been in corporate environments. Corporate events are mm. more difficult. I like to think I'm pretty good at them, and I think other comedians have... You know, have would acknowledge that this is one of the reasons they're tough is because the the person who's booked you is terribly worried that you might offend this client or yeah, or yeah, that yeah. department or you know they want to make it more you know inclusive or not inclusive you know in in various ways and they have the corporate culture which they might be offended or anxious on behalf of as well as the people who are actually in the room but there was know. this case recently wasn't there with the, the comedian my friend I can't remember his name but it really put the nose out of joint of this corporate bash he was doing um, 
Uh, Anish Kapoor. I, oh, Anish Kumar. Well, Anish that Kumar. was it was that wasn't a corporate. That was I was at that event. That was uh, the Lord's Taverners. Um, right. That was a charity lunch. Right. Uh, there were, I mean, people were there in connection with their work. They booked yeah. tables or whatever, but it wasn't a, co- um, mm. a company do. Yeah, the Lord's Taverners uh, lunch. That was at the Grosvenor Hotel. It's mm. the biggest corporate room in the country. It's about twelve hundred mm. seater mm. and. Um, I was I was on the front row for that. It was quite interesting. He he came on and did at least five, maybe ten minutes to really supportive laughter and applause. You know, and it, again, quite self-deprecating about his own ethnic background and immigrant experience and what have you. And then he decided quite quite deliberately to start doing stuff about how much of a racist Boris Johnson was, and how bad Brexit was, and. Um, and there was a bit of, oh, no, not, not this again, rather than kind of, no, 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 get off. It was more like, oh, no, really? And then somebody threw a roll, but in a kind of quite light-hearted way. But then the whole thing did just sort of deteriorate, quite, I think quite une- unexpectedly, really. I'd not seen that there before. But, um, I mean, I'm not going to tell Nish what he has to do. Whoever booked him must have known that's the kind of comedian he is. Yeah, you know, yeah. you can't book Nish Kumar and expect him to come on and do you know, uh, a Dave Allen routine, you know, most, mm. I mean, this is the thing, being a booker for a, for a big corporate event, they earn a lot of money. They, mm. they quite often will, you know, will take the comedian's fee and, yes. and double it, you know, and have half of that. So, you know, you have to earn your keep, but not for that one. I think that was probably, um, because it's a charity event, you know, probably somebody said, oh, this will do it for you, you know, mm. and they didn't perhaps look into it quite as deeply as they should. But um, again, is that just that thing of consensus, really, you know, just assuming that everyone's on the same page and, and maybe they're not? I remember seeing um, Joan Rivers doing a, a stand up uh, you know, towards the end of her life, actually. Yeah. And uh, she was one of my favourites. Yeah, it's great. And, um, she, and, and basically, someone did stand up and she was making a joke about deaf people. And, and she, he said, My son's deaf and everything. And she went for this. Girl. She said, <laughs> Don't you start telling me, you know, mm. don't you start. She swore at him and everything, and she got the audience on side. Yeah, you know, actually, if you have enough confidence, yeah, and she, she has it out. a confidence in the moment, and also a huge hinterland. You know, mm. fifty years of being an, an abrasively offensive comic. Mm. You can't go to her gig and then go, how dare you? You know, yes. my son has this rare neurological disorder. I mean, you know, they know what they're getting, mm. and there are a lot of people. I mean, Frankie Boyle, who has pushed the envelope, you know, on offense mm. quite a lot. You know, had. Um, People in the front row, he would do material about this, that, or or the other marginalised group, vulnerable people, uh, immutable characteristics, and then, and they're laughing their heads off. And then he will say the one thing about the one thing they have a family, and they're like, "Oh no, you can't!" You know, yeah, do yeah, what? Yeah, it was yeah. absurd hypocrisy. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, it is does seem to be a very problematic thing now, which comedy is on the absolute knife edge of, and mm. that, as I say, and that is in the whole identity area and the work mm. which you've referred to. Um, but you say that comedy is in a healthier place now. I think it's in, a, I, think it's in I mean, like, a, a lot of comedy is working in very, uh, um, uh, it, you know, the, the, the cold face of, of identity politics and all mm. that kind of stuff. Mm. It's still trying to work out how to deal with that. Mm. But I do think if you look at, for instance, you know, the strong American sitcoms, you know, and people like Tina Fey, mm. 30 Rock, I mean, that's not brand new, um, you know, Parks and Recreation, those kind of shows. They are faster, more sophisticated, more multi-layered. They're, they're more satisfying, you know, mm. they're more intelligent, mm. to be honest, than a lot of the sitcoms that we have a kind of unexamined nostalgia for in Britain. And, uh, and I think 
the most woke kind of stuff is it is a little bit crazy and there is a sense at the moment not just comedy i mean like the labor party look quite realistically like making themselves completely unelectable mm. over mm. over some an issue which affects much less than one percent of the population mm. in mm. truth mm. so it's you know there is a certain kind of insanity at large you know in the world and it is for comedy to address that but i wouldn't want to say that it was a serious problem affecting comedy at the moment mm. it's just an aspect of comedy that you can become fixated upon if you want to see funnily enough from another from almost the exactly opposite um direction to what i assume you know we share as a political view it was nick cohen yesterday yeah, yeah. um in uh, is it standpoint yeah, yeah, yeah magazine yeah, yeah. complaining that right-wing satirists were failing to take advantage of the lunacy on the left at the uh, moment i think he's right he's right that he's they're right. not that they're not great at doing it but at the same time it's not necessarily the job of the right-wing satirist to attack the left actually that can be done by the left who are trying to make the left electable again i mean you could you know you could definitely make that case yes you could but you know the ruling classes were satirized brutally in the 1960s yeah. a real sea change in society yeah. by the ruling classes people yeah. like peter cook and jonathan yeah. miller were, yeah. were you know coming from that stock they understood the weakness and the, the hypocrisy and the and the preposterous absurdity of of trying to maintain an aristocracy in that day mm. and age and that's why they were so great at satirizing it they were great but the the, the, the big point really is is that the establishment now is left-wing mm. there's no question about it no the progressive ideology goes through all of it well, certainly so the why are people making jokes i mean yeah you know you look at if you look at take spitting image i know it's not the yeah but take spitting image, one of these basically you could have a go at the royal family. You'd have a go, at particularly you know politicians or whatever. You look at it now. They, they, they I think they tried to revive something like it a while ago. Yeah. And it didn't. It didn't oh. because basically people are too frightened to take on yes. certain things anymore. Yeah. And, and there's even even the, the Simpsons now. There was a hideous thing uh, which was shared on on uh, Twitter mm. about a year ago. I don't know if you remember when Donald Trump. Um, he made some arguably quite um, <laughs> unacceptable remark to the effect that Ilhan Omar should go back to Somalia and sort yeah. that place out before she started mm. shouting about uh, American politics being broken. And of course, this created a certain. There was a, a British um, a BBC presenter, BBC Breakfast presenter, I think, who That's was right. accused of being yeah, uh, uh, who was accused of being out of order because she said it was racist and so on. But the Simpsons satirised it by having Donald Trump being chased through. You know the White House by these three women of color, of whom Ilhan Omar was. Well, I can't remember the other two were. You know, and and it was so one-sided, and it was so and it was done as a sort of song. You know, yeah, and yeah. it was just, you know, it, that was really icky to the point where you just go, oh my god, you've actually made me. You, you know, I'm now sympathising with Trump here. Yes, you know, yes, because yes. this is so, you know, so woke. But then you look at South Park. I don't know if you watch South Park, mm, that'd be yeah. an American uh, yeah, animated yeah, yeah, show, yeah, yeah. Um, and that has probably been the single most deft, fearless, and 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 just witty and funny and bravura, uh, you know, uh, display of scepticism about social justice politics for the last 10, 15 years, you know, ahead of many of us in this country even realising what was going on. But you're right, it has become, they are the establishment in terms of the media, you know, whether it was a... a uh, a genuine long march through the institutions or whether it has just naturally occurred whether it's an emergent phenomenon or whether there has been some sort of um, determined effort to to sort of penetrate and work mm. from the inside there has definitely been a twist and a shape 
has changed and there are an awful lot of people now working in the sort of commissioning process mm. who who share a collective view which is not shared by the wider public you know mm. that is true and then they do i think to some extent throw them a bone in the shape of mrs brown's boys or whatever occasionally mm. rather than say we want to see really intelligent scabrous vicious satire from the right or of the south park variety or whatever that takes no prisoners and regards everyone as fair game we want to see that we will commission that a lot of people will say well if you want to see that kind of comedy why don't you write it why don't you do it but there yes. is definitely you know the reality is that if you don't feel it's likely to get picked up if it's if there's no kind of if there's no door open for that if there's no port willing to accept your cargo then it it, it kind of is a suppressive effect yeah. As has been understood by television, because for you know, fifteen years ago, every year you would go to the Edinburgh Festival. Every newspaper would be carrying a story saying, "Why are there no f female comedians? Why are there no women comedians? Are women not funny?" And it was it was genuinely discussed, you know, on that kind of is there some neurological reason or cultural reason why there are no? And a decision was made, or a series decision, a series of decisions were made in the BBC and elsewhere that they were going to start putting women onto panel games like Mock the Week and mm. so on regardless of the fact that there were probably no more than maybe a ratio of 10 to 1 male to female comedians in, in, in the country as a whole, in the live circuit. Mm. Maybe not even that many female comedians when mm. I started. But they said, we are going to put some on because that will create a, um, a, 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 you know, a, a momentum in the direction we want to see the, the yes, industry go yeah, we want yeah. to see more female comedians and so we start putting them on and so if you were a good a half decent female comedian 10 years ago certainly you suddenly had a pretty good chance of getting onto these shows because you were you were in short supply mm. and that did create a, a greater um, impetus to become mm. for female comedians to be drawn into it and to have the confidence that there was a place for them and that it wasn't just a thing that blokes did and now I would say it's a fairly even split and if you go to a comedy evening in a comedy club in provincial Britain Chances are there'll be at least one, possibly, you know, 50-50, yeah, you know, whereas yeah. before it would be really quite unusual. Mm. You know, it was, uh, mm. it was almost a bit of a, oh, here we go. <laughs> yes. I think it's, a, I remember a while ago, similarly, Nicholas Heitner, National Theatre, then director of National Theatre, said, uh, you know, what we need, we need some good, I remember his words, sort of like naughty right-wing plays you know the sort of, the implication being that, come on, let them have a few. Yeah. You know, let them have a few. But, what emerged then is exactly what you've just said, which is that it's a kind of, it becomes this um, vicious circle. People don't put things forward. They say, well, we just don't have any white wing people putting stuff forward. Yeah. They don't because they think they're not going to be. And uh, also, they haven't seen, we all need templates. Yeah. Nobody yeah. creates work, well, a handful of yeah. people create pe work yeah. in a vacuum. And very often, I mean, you look at something like the Beatles, extraordinary creativity. Mm. If you look more closely, it's because you know they were influenced by Bernard Cribbins and Spike Milligan rather yeah, than just by yeah. Jerry Lee Lewis. That yeah. was that's you know sometimes yeah. you just need to have different. So if you're a left wing playwright, you can basically rewrite something that you or three or four. You can yes. rewrite some Brecht. You, you bring in a bit of Tom Stoppard. Actually, to be fair, he's probably quite right wing, but um, you can bring him one of the few. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> some uh, lodge, whatever. <laughs> Out of my depth already, but the. Um, the fact is art advances incrementally. I think Elvis Costello said something that I always thought was brilliant, which I heard early on. He said, there are very few people who are deliberately creative and, and create anything new. Most people start out in the arts trying to copy their heroes and getting it slightly wrong. Mm. 
that's actually how how the arts moves forward you know most of us in in, uh, in you know the punk thing were just trying to get back to the to the rock, the rawness of rock and roll we weren't trying to create anything new we just wanted to get back to the excitement of and that's how it plays and that's how comedians operate you know most comedians will go on channeling somebody else to some extent initially until you find your own voice you've just got to be able to see that there is somebody else that you can go I could do I'd be like that you know do you think uh, Simon that comedy is an art and and if so, do you, do, really, do, you, no. do you think of yourself as an artist? I mean, the reason I'm, I used to write for Culture, Sunday Times Culture a lot, right. and they were always were very big on, on, on comedy. Indeed, comedy now is reviewed in, if you like, the arts pages. Yes. It's considered to be one of the arts. I mean, you don't it's, see it as an art. Well, it's a very, these are, these are slippery words, aren't they? But um, I think it's part of culture, definitely. I think any definition oh, sure. of culture in, includes it. Um, but then, who was it listening to? The, uh, was it was Stephen Pinker or somebody talking about the difference between culture with a capital C and culture with a small c? I suppose mm -hmm. there's always that kind of, um, is it just everything that everyone does all the time? No, you know? I think yeah. very specifically they're talking about yes. it being an art with, with a big C, yeah. yeah. I think the, the Sunday Times culture, somebody told me, was um, partly inspired by, was it the Modern Review, yes, Toby Young was. and all that? Yeah, and that yeah. idea of raising up, you yeah. know, the writing for mm. Coronation Street and so on. Well, the way the degree to which I reject the idea that it's art, and I think it can be elevated to the level of art, but there's something actually I I like the fact that it isn't really an art. I think it's more like a like a folk art, you know. I think it's a yeah. folk tradition. I think it's at its best when you know, and its best practitioners are kind of drawing and channeling the the kind of psyche of a, of the people of their people. It doesn't have to be of their region it can be you know uh, some other organizing principle mm. but they're not I don't feel it's like Michelangelo you know what I mean or, mm. or, or Van Gogh I think it's more like uh, I mean Billy Connolly really was the is the kind of mother load of British stand-up mm. comedy really you know mm. and then you have the sort of Jewish tradition from the New York resorts or whatever but you know the it's like the bit of banter between songs really you know I think I think most comedians feel more comfortable when they're not being held to that kind of standard, and if right. you if you get to the point where you deliver a routine that's so perfectly worded, the timing and everything is so great, you find yourself thinking, it, "That's bloody art. That is well, that's <laughs> great because that's a moment, just like yes, seeing a batsman yes, play yeah, such a yeah, glorious, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, cover drive that you just go, oh, that's that's art, you know." But it's the very fact that you've registered that it's been elevated for that moment, you know. It's not. The whole thing isn't art, really, any more than cricket is art for the whole five days. It's like there are moments, moments. where it elevates to that level, and that's fine. But really, it's a craft, and a and a it's a it's a it's a folk act. I don't know. I, I want to say a folk art, but that means like a, you know what I mean? Yes, you know, I, I, almost like cave painting or something. Yes. It can be every bit yes. as worthwhile. It's yes. not to diminish it. It just doesn't feel like it's the state of mind that you would try and enter in order to create art. You're touring at the moment. Where where are you going to be next? Where oh. can people where can people come and see you and maybe have see a few moments of, ne of a few art? moments where it elevates. <laughs> <laughs> um, I shall be elevating in um, in Devon in the first week of March, and I think then the Midlands in the second week of March, right. um, Nottingham and Birmingham, I think, and one or okay. two others. All on my website. If you want to have a look, it's the Simon Evans. The Simon That's Evans. That's my website. Yeah. 
dot right. com, and um, I have a gigs page on there. It's been knocked up for me very recently as a brand new, nice, shiny website. That I'm very pleased with. Well, Simon, thank you so much for giving us so much pleasure. of your time. You know, thank you very much, and, and congratulations as well on the on the tour. Thank you. Um, there you go. So it's thesimonevans.com if you want to come and see this man. And uh, thank you very much for watching, and we will see you next time. Please remember to subscribe, won't you? Thank you. Bye.